0: Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of our highlight conversations recorded live for our 2023 festival, which explored our theme, Atita, Wartamana, Anagata, past, present, future. And if you enjoyed this session, please consider making a donation to the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. As a not-for-profit organisation, we depend on your generous support to help us survive. To learn more about how to contribute, visit www.ulwoodwritersfestival.com forward slash support dash us. In the meantime, settle in and let the magic of our 20th anniversary festival continue. It is my greatest pleasure to welcome you all to Ubud Writers and Readers Festival 2023. I'm Hapsarina Chua, your host. Before we start, there are a few things I would like to remind you. Please put your mobile phone to silent. Use no flash while taking photos or videos. And respect each other's space, although I'm very sure it's pretty packed in here right now. Follow us on social media at and use the hashtag UWRF23 so we all can enjoy your post. Sorry, Budebra. <laughs> Our session today will be Clashes and Hope, Unpacking the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, featuring Michael Vadikiotis, Anthony Lonstein, and moderated by Christy Melville. I would like to remind you that there will be book signing also after the discussion at the upper floor of Anthony's book. So, ladies and gentlemen, please warmest welcome to our speakers and moderator. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm
1: Kirsty Melville. I present the History Lesson on ABC Radio National back in Australia. And it is my absolute pleasure to be here for this, um, for this session, although I have to say when I agreed to host this session a few months ago, I didn't anticipate <laughs> how uh, timely it would be.
2: Oh, what a boring old issue. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'd like to introduce um, more fully our guest today, um, Michael Kiotas, who apart from being a festival stalwart, I think he's uh, missed about three in the last 20 years. He's a writer and a private diplomat who's lived in Asia for more than 30 years. He's worked as a BBC correspondent and as editor of the Far Eastern Economic Review and he now works on resolving conflicts in Asia and Africa. Um, his latest book is wonderful. Uh, I would have liked to have talked more about all of the personal history in this but I'll have to leave it up to you to go and buy it and read it. Lives Between the Lines, A Journey in Search of the Lost Levant. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, and it, it, as I mentioned, it explores the origins of his, um, his family in the Middle East, but more pertinently to this conversation in Palestine. Uh, Anthony Lowenstein is an independent investigative journalist. You've probably seen him splashed all over the media and Twitter, X, this week. He's a best-selling author and filmmaker who's been reporting on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for decades. His works appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, Al Jazeera English and the New York Review of Books. He's lived in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020 uh, and his latest book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World is also extraordinary and, a high, extraordinary and I highly recommend you go and buy that and read it. It's just been longlisted for the Walkley Book Award. Congratulations. Thank you.
3: <clears throat> Thank you.
1: Now, before we start... Um, I just would like to acknowledge the the deep sorrow and loss that people on both sides of this conflict are feeling right now. And I want to let you know that this conversation is coming from a place of empathy and respect and I urge you all to hear it in that spirit. So on that note, um, Michael, I'm going to start with you um, because when I first heard that you were on this panel, I didn't really know why. (laughs) Why? And so could you just give the context of um, what your interest is in this region?
2: Yeah, because I spent 40 years actually you know, working in Southeast Asia, a refugee in a way from the Middle East, because my, I grew up in England. My father was an academic, um, an Arabist. Um, he was born in Palestine, born in Jerusalem, Palestinian Greek family, um, and was a refugee himself from Palestine after 1948 because you know we talk about the Palestinians, but non-Jews were not allowed to live there either after 1948, at, those, at least those who had government positions, and my grandfather was a railway official. Um, and so he ended up going to the United States and then to the UK, and I grew up with the Middle East conflict, essentially, in the living room. Um, I mean, he was a fluent Arabic speaker, and so most of it was conducted in Arabic, but I grew up with the sort of context, and, and I remember vividly in 1981, Anwar Sadat had just been assassinated, in Cairo by the Muslim Brotherhood, and I said to my father in the living room, I'm going to Asia. You know, I'm getting out of here. You know, this, is, this, is, you know, this is just too horrible. And the other reason is that I had actually wanted to learn Arabic at university. Um, uh, I went to the School of Environmental African Studies, and I'd lived a year in Egypt. And the Arabic department said no, because I wanted to do Arabic part-time, not a full language degree. And they said, you can't possibly learn Arabic part-time. So I ended up doing Thai and Indonesian. So... That's why I went to Asia. But in terms of identity, it was only later in life that I sort of started to realize who I really was because 40 years in Asia can be quite confusing, especially as a, a sort of white, Western-educated person. Although I was very much aware of my mixed background. And when I came to write this book, I started to sort of figure out, well, exactly who am I? Um, I have a, a, a Jewish-Italian mother, uh, Italian-Jewish mother from Egypt and a Greek-Orthodox father with Palestinian blood. And I actually, I'm going to just read how I captured it, because I think I nailed it. Um, <laughs> so I wrote, um, because on my Singapore ID card it says Caucasian. And I'm, I'm offended by that, frankly. Um, so um, I am really a Canaanite, I've decided. Um, a hodgepodge of DNA flung around desert caravanserais, mingled with that of weary Iberian Sephardic outcasts and wild Ottoman janissaries scything their way through the Balkans. I'm a Canaanite.
1: I'm going to come back a little later to um, to your family history and the Palestine that they found themselves living in in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But for now, Anthony, I want to throw to you... and. I just want to, I'm i interested to hear what you're hearing on the ground right now from friends in both Gaza and Israel.
3: I want to first thank everyone for coming. This is unbelievably relevant and topical more, I think, than many of us even realised when this panel, as Kirsty said, was arranged a few months ago. I'm hearing nothing good, which is not exactly a revelation, but worth saying. I have friends in Gaza who are mostly alive as far as I'm aware. Communication obviously is unbelievably hard. Internet is regularly cut, there's barely any power. A friend of mine just messaged just before I came on here saying that it's often very hard to even get any way to charge your mobile phone, so it's very hard to get accurate information. But having said that, there is a uncontrolled, without constraint Israeli bombardment going on out of anger, revenge, bloodlust a degree of undeniable fear after the despicable Hamas attack two weeks ago, which caused profound, for some Israelis and some Jews around the world, what I would call existential dread. The Hamas attack wasn't about to wipe Israel off the map. I don't mean it like that. I mean that it causes for some Jewish people, and I'm Jewish myself, a sense that this kind of, Unbelievable ugliness and brutality is what we as collective Jews remember from the dark old days. Now, I would question some of that analogy, but that is the feeling that many Jews have in Israel, around the world. And that anger, which is, and fear, which undeniably happened, has caused Israel, which is currently having the most right wing fascist government in its history to unleash a military campaign that many of them in that government have been dying to do for years. This is the moment. This is the moment that many in the Israeli right who are now in charge of that country, not just Netanyahu but the leadership around him, who have desired for years to find a way to either kick out as many Palestinians as possible from Gaza or kill as many Palestinians as possible from Gaza. And if you think I'm exaggerating that, one only has to hear the rhetoric, not even just in the last two weeks. I document some of this in the book, but you can find this very easily online. There is far more mainstream genocidal intent within mainstream Israeli society than most people outside of Israel want to acknowledge. I'm not saying every Israeli Jew thinks like that. Of course they don't. But it's unbelievably mainstream. And to me, one of the key problems with so much of the shock that people feel in the global community now is, and understandable there's anger and fear and concern, all those emotions are legitimate, is that there has been, in my view, a deliberate whitewashing in much of the Western press about what actually is going on inside Israel, not just the last two weeks, for decades, that there has been a frankly, takeover of the state by what was once a fringe far-right fascist movement, the settler movement, is now at the centre of Israeli power. And what that means is it is a exterminationist, genocidal intent, that the vision, if you can call it that, amongst many in the Israeli political mainstream, not just on the right, not just on the right, is... We have to finish what we did not finish in 1948. Namely, there was ethnic cleansing in '48. Israel was established. Three quarters of a million Palestinians were forcibly removed. Fast forward 75 years. And I have in the book, and there are many other people who have said this just in the last two weeks within the Israeli political and media establishment, this is our chance to finish or at least continue that brutal mission. And it's unvarnished and it's ugly and it's racist and it's horrific. So I have Israeli Jewish friends of mine who I've spoken to since the attack. They were not personally impacted. They were not injured. They were not killed. And I'm talking about, for example, Gideon Levy, who's an amazing Israeli writer, journalist. Um, He's my first son. His, His second name is named after him. He's one of my heroes. He's an amazing man. And... He visited some of the areas in the south of Israel where Hamas attacked and killed huge numbers of Israelis and he said that it was ISIS-like, that the brutality, the ugliness was incredible. Having said that, what he wrote consistently, what he's been saying in the media for the last two weeks, and I'll finish on this point, is Israelis, this is his words, Israelis will learn nothing from this attack, nothing. Now, when he means Israelis, he doesn't mean every single one. He means the vast majority of Israelis will not learn anything from this attack. And the comparison he would make is like the US after 9-11. They learnt nothing from that attack, I would argue.
1: We were discussing this the other day, that, um, and I'm wondering if, if Hamas has unwittingly handed Israel that 9-11 moment mm. and I guess some kind of perceived moral high ground to do exactly as
2: you've just described, Michael? It's a really, I mean, I just want to carry on from, I think, uh, Anthony's very good framing of the current situation and sort of extend out a little bit to the enabling environment um, that sort of, I I think helps fuel what this hard right, and I think you're using the right word fascist, um, you know, core of the establishment Israel is trying to do. Um, And that is the use of the T word, terrorism. Um, because if you remember in 9-11, the T word unleashed hell on large numbers of people uh, in the name of revenge for, what was it, 3,500 or so American citizens who were, and others who were killed in the Twin Towers. Um, and I think that that's what's happened again. We went from a declaration of war, which I think was the first day or so or few hours uh, after the 7th of October attack, to it's our 9-11 moment. And that was, I think, quite deliberate on the part of the Israelis because they know that that unlocks not just sentiment, but also a whole new military configuration on the part of the United States and Europe, plus money, a whole lot of money that can be now spent on supporting Israel in this, in this effort without having to go through appropriations and sort of you know, the usual channels. And you know, I was thinking about this, and I think it's very important to frame what we mean by terrorism. And I've actually written this down because I think it's important to be precise. Terrorism is a form of violence that obeys no rules and generates, as we heard, unspeakable atrocity. In the hands of its victims, terrorism gives powerful armies the license to commit acts of terrible revenge that violate the rules of war, resulting in much greater acts of violence whose victims are denied any redress except to resort to more terrorism. I think that rather sums it up. So the T word is now unleashed and I think now the rest of the world, in addition to having to deal with that, is now also dealing with a very divided sort of set of public opinions which is broadly divided into young and old. The younger generation in many foreign ministries around Europe and the United States are of course very alarmed by the loss of life and would like to see an immediate ceasefire and and talks begin. For whatever reason, the older generation in power is basically saying, no, 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 we have to provide unconditional support. And, you know, there's the money and there's the military configuration and there's all that. And I think the other thing that this contributes to, and I'll end on this, is that this also contributes to this steady decline of our own civilizational approach to the rules-based order, where we no longer are capable of understanding the difference between what is right and wrong. And this is, I think, very serious ramifications for all of us. It started with the Ukraine war. It started with 9-11, but it's now bled into the Russia-Ukraine war. And now, I think, even more manifested in what we're seeing today, where people simply will not accept that international law applies in this situation. And I was quoting earlier King Abdullah as making this of Jordan, making this very clear. There's one rule for you and one rule for us. And for us, human rights don't apply. International law doesn't apply. Um, You can do whatever you want to us. And I think that's a very, very important civilizational pivot for us because if we continue down that road, there will be no rules. There can be no more rules-based order. What do you think the
3: intent of Hamas was? Anything I say has to have the caveat that I haven't chatted to the leadership in the last (laughs) few days, nor have all this information is still being investigated. So that's the caveat to anything that I think anyone can say. But there's a few things, I think, that can be said fairly confidently. One, from what I'm understanding, a lot of the Hamas leadership didn't expect it to be, inverted commas, as successful. They expected maybe they would go in there, get some soldiers, take them back into Gaza, and they could negotiate for a number of Palestinians who are in Israeli prisons, often for years, totally illegally. I think there was a sense that they were, Hamas that is, incredibly concerned, as, frankly, Iran is that there is a growing so-called normalisation deals going on across the Middle East between Israel and Arab countries, which were always built on sand. This, of course, continued during the Trump administration where some people will remember the US and Israel signed these amazing so-called normalisation deals with um, Bahrain and UAE, Morocco came into it, Saudi was on the cusp. They were all delusional, because the vast majority of Arabs in those countries don't support it, A, and B, they were arms deals. And the book talks about this in detail, but most of those Arab states are petrified existentially from another Arab spring-type situation. And the way they're trying to avoid that is to get huge amounts of Israeli repressive technology, spyware, other sort of repressive tech, that Israel's tested in Palestine, is sold around the world, And they've bought huge amounts of that. That was part of the negotiation and part of the deal. Now, Trump didn't announce it in that way. It was going to be a new era in the Middle East. It was all bullshit. And Saudi was maybe on the cusp of joining that club. And Hamas and others did not want that because they'd be more isolated. That was also maybe a factor. I think also finally I would say that Hamas and other militant groups wanted to send a message to the world in a frankly, unbelievably brutal way that you cannot lock up Palestinians for decades and make it cost-free. This is what I mentioned before about Gideon Levy, the Israeli writer, who has been saying this fairly um, uniquely because most of the Israeli media establishment right now is utter bloodlust. He is saying there is no military solution to this conflict. There never has been and there will not be now. Zero. And yet... Israel will go into Gaza, ground invasion today, tomorrow, next week, whenever. They will attempt to decapitate Hamas. Maybe, possibly, they can do so. Who knows? And then what? I'm very much, let me finish on this, compare it to, again, the 9-11 reference to the US and Afghanistan. The US overthrew a Taliban in two weeks. The US overthrew Saddam in three weeks. That wasn't the challenge. There was hubris that they they were winning the war. It was delusional. Then the guerrilla war started and the US lost both those wars and, in fact, hasn't won a war in half a century. Neither has Australia, by the way. We cannot win a war. We actually don't know how to win wars because we start wars we shouldn't have started. And I fear that Israel is doing exactly the same thing. They could maybe decapitate Hamas, maybe, possibly, and then what? And just finally, there's a Reuters report two days ago that said that there is no Israeli plan. In other words the Israelis don't know what they're going to do if and when Hamas is overthrown, which leads to inevitable more chaos. And in the eliminationist, exterminationist mindset of much of the Israeli far right, that's actually a good thing. Chaos actually is a good thing. It's what they want.
2: I think the other tragedy to this, in in addition to what, uh, following on from what Anthony said, is that I've been in the Middle East three or four times this year, uh, not in Israel, but uh, in and around in the Levant, Um, and I was actually in northern Iraq just three weeks ago, um, that possibly wearing sort of, you know, blinders, I I think many people in Syria, Jordan, Iraq, uh, in the Gulf, uh, in Egypt, um, were starting to sort of enjoy a period of what they call de-escalation. That's not to say that the terrible conflicts that have afflicted those countries uh, in the last 20 years have gone away, but there was a sort of let-up in the pace and the... And even the attention paid to those conflicts, and even, I think it was mostly perception. As soon as the uh, the, the Russia-Ukraine war broke out, the Middle East breathed a great sigh of relief. Um, Now, having said that, there were people also saying there's going to be a third intifada. You know, this thing cannot, because of the pressure that the settlers have brought to bear uh, on the West Bank in particular, and I I think one big surprise was that it came out of Gaza. I think people expected the anger to boil over on the West Bank um, where you know, every day, Palestinians are harassed, are killed, um, are denied basic necessities, their land is taken. Um, you know, Gaza was sort of shut off from Israel, but not the West Bank. Mm. Um, and I think people expected the trouble to be there. But at the same time, they were hopeful. I mean, it's partly what you said, which is the, the Saudis and the Gulfies sort of saying, well, if we can accommodate Israel, we can maybe manage it. I don't think the Saudis were gonna sign that thing, by the way. I think they were, they were holding out for an arms deal with the US, and I think they wouldn't have signed. Um, but so there was this sort of sense, as, and the word is confusing to us because it's, they, they use the term de-escalation. That's not end of conflict. That's just Syria. They want to recover. They want to, they want to rebuild their communities. They've had 20 years of more recent war. Um, so I think it's just, it's a tragedy in a way, but that's all been blown away um, because now I think, as, as Anthony said, the, the conflict may well spread to Lebanon, which is a country that is in deep trouble, um, it may, may well spill over into the West Bank uh, and therefore will affect Jordan. Um, I have to say, though, when I was in Erbil in northern Iraq just less than three weeks ago, it didn't, after the, after the attack, just after the attack, didn't come up once. The Kurds couldn't care less. I mean, they're not Arabs. It's not their fight. They have bigger issues inside Iraq. Uh, and I think that, that you're going to see a lot of that. Egypt, it, you don't see evidence of mass demonstrations in, on the streets of Cairo, they're on the streets of, you know, Western capitals. Um, but people have got other problems to deal with as well. Um, and, and I think, you know, to be fair to my sort of Arab friends, it did, this issue was getting... A li- I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, pa- the, the lack of a solution to the Palestinian problem has always been there. But at the same time, you know, they've got other issues to deal with as well. Because the Palestinians have been
3: abandoned by basically the entire Arab world, not the Arab people, I'm talking about the Arab elites, had abandoned the Palestinians in the deluded belief that somehow the conflict would just kind of go away. And what they're finding, these deeply corrupt, mostly Western-backed thugs that we support and fund and arm not necessarily the three of us on the stage probably, <laughs> can't speak for you two, but don't fund them directly, but we in the West are funding them, supporting them, protecting them under this illusion of indefinite security, and Michael mentions de-escalation. I'm not saying he's wrong on that, but I would say if you are in Palestine, the violence, Gaza and the West Bank, even before the last two weeks, it's been the deadliest
2: period for decades.
3: But just Palestinian civilians are dying every single day. But can
2: we also ascribe some blame, please, to the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinians? Backed and funded by us. Because, you know, I mean, my father, bless him, before he died. Uh, he, was very, he went to school with the founding members of the PFLP, the, the Palestinian Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And you know, these were the original sort of hijackers and in, launched the initial campaign of violence outside of Palestine. And I remember him, you know, in, in his diaries after he died, I read that you know, he had tried to convince the Palestinians through the council. Um, that they should raise money on the ground and they should focus the struggle on the ground. But no, what did they do? They took money from the, from the sheikhs, from the oil barons, from the, from the corrupt states, and they got rich. And they, they decided to take that money instead of raising money from the ground for the struggle on the ground. And the, PLO, the Palestinian movement became rather detached from Palestine. Um, this is sort of pre-Oslo pre the formation of the West Bank and so on. And it was just sad to see these people who were campaigning internationally for their freedom, who like many, many armchair rebels, were basically being treated by you know, the, the, the rich oil sheikhs, who never, my father always argued, never intended to fight for them in Israel. After the 67 war, that's it. They knew that Israel could not be defeated, and they gave up. So you're right. But also ascribe the blame to the Palestinian leadership, please. I have for 20 years. They are deeply corrupt,
3: deeply complicit, and mostly backed and funded by us.
1: Well, where is Mahmoud Abbas in all of this?
3: Chain smoking, somewhere in Ramallah, about to die, and it couldn't come a day soon enough. I mean, seriously, (laughs) these people have no credibility. Not talking about with me. The Palestinians in Palestine regard people like him. For those who don't know, he's the supposed leader of the Palestinian Authority, has no authority his four-year term expired more than 12 years ago, he's a typical Arab Western-backed thug that no one respects. And one of the possibilities that I'm hearing is that if and when Hamas is overthrown, we'll just bring the Palestinian Authority back and they'll control Gaza. It's delusional. Either by him, how he's still alive at 87 and chain smoking is beyond me, but he is, but... It's, you know The thing that is so often, I think, missed in so much of the Western coverage of this issue is this is a colonial issue. This is imperialism. It's not just a conflict between two sides who can't get along. It's colonialism. That's what it's always been. If you displace people for decades and decades and decades, you can't be surprised if they rebel and resist and get damn angry, even if the whole world mostly chooses to ignore it until they can't anymore.
1: I think this is a good place to, to jump back a bit and get some context for how we've ended up where we are today. And, Michael, I'm interested to hear the... I guess the... Um, if you could paint a picture for us of the Palestine that your great-grandfather, I believe it was your great-grandfather, he migrated arrived, He to, arrived from Greece, yeah. From Greece to Palestine. What was the Palestine that he arrived in like?
2: You know, it's, it's a very... After I wrote the book, and, and, and I, like many people who look at that, 100-year period from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, a sort of halcyon period of, of relatively sort of um, peaceful cosmopolitanism, which was essentially um, built by the Ottomans through their rather neglectful form of imperialism. Um, you know, they just they let people be. And, and many of, their, of the local leaders of the Ottoman Empire, you know, took sort of skills and people and trade from everywhere. But it's interesting that that period is going through a revival in the thinking about what the Middle East of the future should look like. All the lines that were drawn and all the conflicts that were generated by the post-colonial era, if only we could get rid of all that and go back to what we were before, which was squabbling communities, rather unequal, Jews were not equal citizens under the Ottoman Empire, um, or non-Muslims, but everyone was sort of allowed to live together and, and get on. So, but the, the, the Palestine that my, my great grandfather and my grandfather was born into was um, one of relative um, calm and, um, I would say, um, you know, peaceful coexistence for a number of communities. You had the Palestinian Arabs of the of the Galilee, sort of the River Jordan Valley and the Sea of Galilee. You had the coastal Arabs who were sort of piratical, sort of merchant. Um, rather influenced by the, by the Ottomans, mixed in with a sprinkling of sort of Balkans and Greeks and Italians. and you know, That's where the Cosmopolitan was, along the coast. And then you had um, the, the Orthodox Jewish com- you know, uh, communities in the holy sites, and most importantly, the Greek Orthodox Church, which controlled everything. I mean, today, in the land of Israel, one-third of the land of Israel is actually owned by the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, the Knesset. The uh, the prime minister's residence is actually built on Greek land. Um, And they were all sort of happily, but not so happily, in the end. Because as European imperialism started to impact on the region and the Turks, the the Ottoman Empire declined and the Europeans started coming in, everyone started to squabble a little bit. And, you know, what? the first thing that happened in the Holy Land was that the, the Christian missionaries started coming in and displacing, for God's sake, the Greek Orthodox. And so there was an immediate fight between the Orthodox Greeks and the, and the Franciscans and the, and the Catholics over the holy sites. And then the next thing that happened in the 1920s and 30s is Jewish immigration started just before the Second World War, encouraged by the Brits um, since the Balfour Declaration. And that started to displace um, relationships and communal harmony, particularly where my father was growing up in Haifa, which was basically a port city, and it was full of everyone. Um, And and it was also rather trade unionized, and so it was a bit leftist. And so when the the European migrants came, there was an immediate displacement, particularly among dock workers and so on, and and so there was already tension. But the real turning point came in 1930 with the Arab Revolt. And the Arab Revolt was against the British policy on Palestine. It was very violent, it was put down horribly, Um, many Jews were killed, many Arabs were killed, but the British basically put it down violently.
1: Can you just jump back to 1917, to that Balfour Declaration, and tell people what that was and what what the promises promises that were given leading up to that?
2: Well, I don't have the the text in front of me, but it essentially promised a homeland uh, to the Jews. Um, And what's interesting about the Balfour Declaration is the context. Don't forget this was happening just a few... around the time of the Irish Revolt, um, which I think was an important part of the context because the Brits were putting down their own you know, their own people. Um, and, um, you know, at the time also, they were exporting a lot, of, a lot of people away from bad places so they could sort of deal with them um, in, in different ways. And, and so the Irish question, I think, was very much in the back of everyone's mind, 1916 onwards. Um, and, so that in, and, they, and the empire was reaching its apogee. It was, the, it was the height of empire. And the British thought that they could just direct things. Well, we can, you know, we can make this decision. They had buyer's remorse almost immediately afterwards. There were several incidents. Um, the Peel Commission was one of them in the 1930s, which basically wanted to reverse that. And they said, no, 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 this is a bad idea because it's causing conflict. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? And then the Americans objected seriously to, to the large-scale immigration in Palestine, seeing it as a casus belli and seeing it as the, as the root of future conflict. And although we all remember that the United States was the first country to vote for partition, they actually tried to fight against it. They were very much against, you know, dividing Palestine, and they knew what was going to come. And so th- this long tragedy of everyone kind of foretelling the bad things that were going to happen um, through the sort of history as it was sort of marching along, especially after the Second World War, before and just after the Second World War, it's tragic.
1: So when, after partition um, came into effect, I think May, May 1948, when the Jewish state was declared, mm-hmm. um, what was the immediate impact?
3: On Palestinians or on On Palestinians. The Jews? Well, there's sort of a myth that's been told for a long time that the problems in inverted commas only started in 1967. For the first 20 years of Israel's existence, Palestinians were not equal citizens. You know, it's amazing to look back now and see, maybe including some people in this room, who would have regarded years ago Israel as some socialist paradise. It was always bullshit. It was a socialist paradise. Maybe if you were Jewish, not if you were Arab or Palestinian. You were not an equal citizen in Israel from day one, never. They weren't, sort of having fun making love on kibbutzes, they were living in a in a deeply unequal way.
1: How was it though that was so? There was it was so asymmetrical. There was such a power imbalance. Can, can I just them add though
2: just to Anthony? Non-Jews as well. My grandfather, Greek Orthodox, had to leave Israel as a government employee and when he arrived in greece a country that he knew from his name but had never been there he described himself as a refugee
3: how is it you said how is the disparity of power so clear i think there was a few reasons i mean obviously we can't separate threes after the holocaust and the establishment of israel i mean zionism as an ideology only came into existence 50 years before It's remarkably new, inverted commas, as an ideology. People obviously had talked about that within Europe in some form of that, that the belief that it was not possible to be safe as Jews in Europe. We're always going to be treated as second-class citizens. We have to have our own state somewhere. Now, the founders of Zionism could never have imagined that in less than 50 years they would have their own state. And I think after the Holocaust there was global revulsion. There was still a lot of anti-Semitism in the world. Let's be clear about that. There was then and there still is now. But that sense of anti-Semitism was arguably less than anti-Arab sentiment. And there wasn't really a great deal of fear, mistakenly, that somehow establishing a Jewish state essentially Ooh. on Palestine. There's always been Jews. The Jews had a connection to that area for a long time. Anyone says otherwise is wrong. However... There were way more Arabs and Palestinians there than there had been Jews. Obviously, over time, that number changed. But I think there was a belief, a deluded belief by the US, by the UK, when the UK's role then was done. Their empire days were gone, and they still sort of live the glory days, but it's over, guys. Hello. They're done. The Americans haven't quite recognised that their days are going to come to an end soon too, but nonetheless... There is this idea, I think, somehow that you can, as Michael said, put people on a chessboard in the hope that it'll somehow work out okay. And I think by 1967, the Six-Day War, Israel taking control of East Jerusalem, Gaza, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights, that then Messianic Judaism took off. And the impact of that 60 years later is exactly where we are now, where there's always been a fringe of far-right fascist Judaism, like in any religion. It's not unique to Judaism. But what has happened, it's been empowered for years in the extreme settler movement. People often hear the word settler in the West, don't quite know what it means. I mean, the short way to describe it is these are people, not all, but many who are genocidal. If you go to somewhere like Hebron, a very infamous, what's a well-known Palestinian town, and there's about a 1,000 Jews. If you go there today, not 50 years ago, today, they are openly calling for the extermination of Palestinians and Arabs, openly. And they're given 110% Israeli government military support. That is the ideology that started off as a fringe movement that is now profoundly mainstream. And I don't know now in 2023, you can't reverse that. You can't go back to what it was 50, 60 years ago. That is now at the heart, I would argue, the cancer at the heart of Israel.
2: So it raises questions about what, if any, peace process is doable or viable. And it's just sort of my business, so I should sort of know something about it, although I find it, I find it really hard, uh, because of the picture that you paint, um, to imagine um, what a viable peace process would look like, even a dialogue at this point. I mean, about three or four months before this, this violence, there was an attempt by the Americans to convene the Palestinians and others, I think in Aqaba, in, in Jordan. It was a failure. Complete failure. There's, shocked to hear that. Yeah, just, ah, just I shocked. Mean, yeah. So the Americans will say, or oh, it's not that we haven't tried. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm sure that they knew that it wouldn't work. Um, so you know, there's been absolutely, the, and the Palestinian Authority mandated to do this. They refused to hold an election because in any election Hamas would probably win. Um, and you know, they they're scared in a way of actually going to the table because they know they don't really represent anymore. Uh, it's Hamas who represents the Palestinians physically. Um, I mean, despite what the r- propaganda says, I mean, the fact is the only people fighting for their rights at the moment is Hamas. PA has done nothing. Um, and so it's very hard to imagine what a peace process would look like. And yet, I think we will get to that point once this you know, awful p- period passes. We had a European effort. We had an American effort. Before that, um, we had... Um, uh, the rest of the world sort of chiming in, but nothing has worked and I think that what we're going to end up with is uh, 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 having to knock it down to its basics again and having to deal with Hamas and Iran. Iran, by the way, I think is the big winner in all this at this point. Um, you know, they wanted Hamas to be the negotiating partner of the Israelis. They, wa- they always want their proxies to be in front. They've achieved it in Yemen with the Houthis. They've got Hezbollah and Lebanon. They're likely to, If there's any fighting in, uh, along the border, Iran will move in even more sharply. And so I think what will eventually have to happen is that any process will have to be involving the United States, the Arab world, and Tehran. With no Tehran, no process. And this, of course, is Israel's worst nightmare. I happen to believe that the reason why Israel has demonized Iran so badly over the last 20 years is because they were worried that a peace process might succeed, and they wanted some antidote to a peace process, which, because of the Americans' fear of Iran, was an effective one. Mm. But now Iran's going to come front and centre again.
1: So if we were going to have the Michael Vadakiyotis peace process, if you were sitting down with Netanyahu now, what would you say?
2: I would, I would get the Chinese, who have leverage over the Iranians, to do a de-escalation deal between Israel, Israel and Iran, and then you'd have to bring Iran to the table with the Arab, with the other Arabs and the Palestinians. Hamas, of course, you know, speaks uh, uh, answers to Iran, so does Hezbollah. Um, they have to be in the room.
3: What would you say? I wouldn't be quite so polite. I think that, to me, the only way or the likely way this will end or evolve—I'm not talking about today and tomorrow—is very much similar to how apartheid South Africa ended in 1994. That. For decades and decades and decades, there was essentially global acceptance. I'm not talking about people. I'm saying governments widely accepted apartheid South Africa, including Israel. There's a big section in my book actually about that because that relationship between apartheid South Africa and Israel to me is central to understanding Israel today. There was an ideological alignment between both those states, and the reason I mention that is eventually... There were boycotts, there were sanctions, there was divestment against apartheid South Africa until, of course, Mandela was freed. 1994 apartheid ended officially. But it's important to remember, right till the end, the only country that was still friends with them was Israel. Right till the end. And the reason I get South Africa as a so-called model, not because what's happening now is utopia, there are profound problems in South Africa today. There is apartheid existing now, economic apartheid, to be sure. The reason I give that as an example, I do not see a serious shift in Israel-Palestine until there is massive international pressure on Israel, and that might feel very far away today. But I think the longer that Gaza is levelled and attacked and bombed and consumed by war, it's going to be, in inverted commas, easier to build a movement, which already exists. There is a boycott, divestment, sanction movement. I would argue that trying to imagine, this is not by any means to... Sideline any so called official negotiations, which has to happen at some point as well. But alongside that, there needs to be massive economic pressure on Israel. Israeli Jews won't suddenly change, wake up one morning and say, This apartheid's pretty awful down the road. No, they need to feel economic pain. That's the only way white South Africans realize that their country was no longer acceptable.
1: I mean, the only dissent really that I've heard um, from mainstream. Western country or key Western countries, has been, um, there's been dissent within the State Department in the US. So can you explain what, what that dissent is well, about?
2: Well, I, I think it's wider than that. I, as I said earlier, I think there's... I mean, I know from friends that I have in European foreign ministries that I work with that there's, there's very much a, a growing divide now. I mean, I think the time that you, that you think... Um, the time for the massive pressure on Israel may be closer than you think. Because I I, I think this could be, if one looks at it a little bit optimistically, a bit of a breaking point. Because my earlier point as well about European values and civilization, I think many people are sort of saying, well, wait a minute, we do have to draw the line here. Because otherwise, who are we? You know, what kind of people are we um, that we would allow this to happen? And what else can we achieve in the rest of the world if we don't draw the line here? I mean, how can we say that the Russians are evil if we're supporting this kind of evil? Um, And so I think there's a growing realization in particularly sort of younger ranks of the State Department, European foreign ministries, the EU, well, actually this could be a turning point for us. Now, the problem is the perpetual atonement for the Holocaust is a very powerful, emotive, and now I think politically mobilized, Mm. weaponized, um, you know, the money that's now being spent (coughs) to influence European establishments. Um, you know, is extraordinary, and so you're, it, these two forces, I think, are colliding.
3: One of the things I talk about in the book, which ties into this, is how a lot of people aren't aware of this. In the last years, and this is <coughs> a loose coalition of sorts, that Israel is building a loose coalition of right-wing and far-right groups and parties yeah. around the world. So, yeah. for example, it's not uncommon to go to far-right rallies which I go to for work, not for pleasure, just to be clear. For you. <laughs> um, and you may see Israeli flags. Now, these are often neo-Nazi groups. So on the face of you, might think, hang on a minute, how the hell would neo-Nazis love Israel? How the hell would the alt-right in America admire Israel? And this is, the al- this is the alignment that people need to understand, is that many, many groups around the world, on the right and the far right, often not all supported by Israel but sometimes, see an ideological alignment with an ethno-nationalist far-right Jewish state. They want to create themselves, say, a Christian ethno-nationalist state, or India, for example, a big section in the book, yeah. talks about Modi's vision is a far-right Hindu fundamentalist state. And India is doing its own thing for its own reason, not because of Israel, but Israel is providing huge amounts of inspiration. That's based on comments, documents, details, not just my guess, it's, a, it's reality. And I say that because, although I agree with Michael, this may be some turning point, the fact is, in many parts around the world,
2: the right and the far right yeah. are in the ascendancy. Not to mention the Christians. So I spent a lot of time in Jerusalem and when I was researching the book, but also because you know it's the city of my father's birth, and um, my family was in and around Jerusalem for, for most of that century, that, that whole century, mid, mid-19th century to mid-20th century. And I started to look at the Christian quarter. In fact, I, I got, in, got an interview with the, Christi- the Greek Orthodox Patriarch, and I started to look into the land grab that's going on at the moment. In his, in, in the, so one part of this jigsaw, in addition to the West Bank, has been the far right's determination to make Jerusalem a completely Jewish city. Jerusalem, which is the half of Christianity, half of Islam, the third most important site in Islam, and, and, and Judaism... They want to completely eradicate all that. They want to take over the Dome of the Rock, which is built on the foundations of the Second Temple. And they also want to eradicate the Christian quarter. And they're doing this using smart New York lawyers who go and bribe the church officials and get hold of the leases of the land. And this has happened very publicly. And then when you go to the United States and you say to them, "Well, but wait a minute, this is the Christian quarter that's being eradicated. But the Christian evangelicals think this is perfectly fine. Because the Jews are a chosen people, and the, Israel has to be completely Jewish so that when the rapture happens...
3: It's coming. And it's coming. It is coming. It is coming. <laughs> Soon. And, we can you know, only hope.
2: And God help us, because Mike Pompeo may well be the next Secretary of Defense, and he believes in the rapture. Hmm. Which means that there is no resistance to this at all on the part of the Christians, let alone the Jewish community and, you know, so it's, it's Christians and Jews versus Muslims, basically. Let me give some hope because I feel
3: like people might go, oh, my God, this is so damn grim. <laughs> Can
1: you save that for the last words?
3: <laughs> well, I just want to mention this briefly because I think this is a really important shift. Because of all the things that we're talking about, what's happened in the last 10 years is there is a profound shift going on in global Jewish communities. Yeah, This is real. What I mean by that is, for decades and decades, there was always Jewish dissent about Israel-Palestine, to be sure. But in general, the Jewish establishment community's view was Israel right or wrong. What's happened in the last 10 years, it's most evident in the US, but Europe as well, straight to an extent, is generally along generational lines, I call it a there's an insurgency within the Jewish community. And what that means is that so many, particularly younger Jews, will no longer tolerate being told by their rabbi, father, mother, grandparent. We must support Israel. Just a few days ago in Congress, there were 500 Jews occupying Congress, not in a violent way, peaceful way, including rabbis calling for a ceasefire. It's one example. Now, I'm not suggesting it's the majority of the Jewish community in America. It's not. But it's a growing, growing, vocal, powerful minority. And I say that because the only way Israel can survive in the long term, I would argue, yes, evangelical Christian support is vital. But the only way it's survived for 75 years is massive Jewish diaspora backing. That is breaking down.
1: I do wonder, though, I mean, just circling back to something I asked earlier, if Hamas had undermined its own cause by mm. the viciousness of the October 7 attack and by, you know, alienating liberal Israelis and, and liberal Jews around the
3: world. Um, undeniably, I think it's, I think you'd be a fool to suggest that the brutal Hamas attack may not have a negative effect in some areas of Palestinian solidarity. I'm not saying all peoples, and including in the Jewish community where I know there's lots of agonised conversation going on internally. I'm talking about the US and the UK and elsewhere to sort of say this is... We we support Palestine and Palestine rights and Palestinian self-determination, but the level of brutality against us as Jews was so extreme that I think for some, I'm not saying for me, but for some it is definitely causing some Jews, not in some ways unsurprisingly, to really question where we go forward. I think that's true, but I do think the longer Israel is bombarding Gaza, and again, let's be clear, this didn't start two weeks ago. The West Bank's been on fire for years. Every single day now, every day there are multiple Palestinian civilians being killed. Every day, this is the reality in Palestine. It didn't happen two weeks ago. It's been going on for years, and that is the reality that Palestinians face. And I think
2: it is shifting, as Anthony. I mean, it, you know, just last week uh, or earlier this week, when the White House, when Biden made his speech, I mean, it was. It was, it was very much in one direction. But they've had to row that back. I mean, 500 children and then the hospital attack. I mean, you know, I think it's now going back to my earlier point about the division within, within government. I mean, we've gone from the State Department saying that they can't use the word, you know, uh, de-escalation or ceasefire to the White House rowing back its statements so that they're now including a two-state solution in the sort of White House memes because I think they'd realise this is unsustainable. It's, you know... That well, two state is
3: dead. I mean, I, know, but, I mean, but, two states, please. But it's done.
2: But, but never mind. My point is that they're rowing back yes. from the unconditional to something that requires something mm. else.
1: Mm. Well, if a two states dead, I mean, is a one state even possible? I mean,
2: well, can I can, can I, I ask that look? because I I was actually met some people, 2018-2019, who were one staters These are Arabs living in Israel who felt you know, there might be a chance to live in a pluralistic um, democracy. This, was, <laughs> this, was, this seems like an eon ago. But actually, in that election, they did quite well. I mean, the one-staters did quite well. There are Arab parties who got elected, um, and they, they, have, they, they have a significant number of MPs, I forget the number, and that's when the right wing pounced, um, because I think that was a threat to them as well. Is one
3: state possible? Well, today and tomorrow... Probably not. But again, Israel is facing an existential question. There's only two options here. There's indefinite occupation and apartheid, which is what we're in now, or some kind of resolution towards a solution. I would argue one state. I think one state is the only viable long-term solution. But the alternative is apartheid. That's what it is now. So when Israel says, oh, how can we talk to Palestinians? They're terrorists, or Hamas are killing our citizens. Sure, that's horrific what happened, but ultimately and eventually, I would argue that the US in fact should not be involved in any negotiations. Cut them I mean that won't happen. Cut them out. The idea that the US has any credibility, they
2: have zero credibility. Credibility with whom? With Palestinians? No. The president was disinvited from a summit that he set up in
3: in Jordan. I mean, Biden goes to Israel and kind of is like some senile old man. He doesn't know what he's talking about on Palestine. It is so embarrassing. This is U.S. leadership. He said a few days ago, the world needs more American leadership. No, no, the world needs no American leadership. This is not the solution.
2: (laughs) Poor sponsors.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Our dear sponsors of the Ullwood Writers Festival. (laughs) God bless America. Yeah, okay.
1: (laughs) Uh, Michael, at the beginning of the year, you tweeted some predictions for the year.
2: Oh, God, you saw that, did you? Oh, I
1: did. (laughs) Uh, One of them was that there would be a complete annexation of the occupied territories.
2: Yeah, I I, I mean, I'm very much of Anthony's view that this has just been building up. And you know it's far worse than people realise. And one of my predictions at the beginning of the year was that that that, that there would be more and more of this leading to you know. Uh, uh, but but the third part of that prediction is also very important, which is a breakdown of the rules-based order. And I think you know we really do have to pay attention to this, because otherwise we have none of us have any leverage at all anymore. Um, You know, and and Israel is the most difficult. I mean, as an organization, we've never dealt with the state of Israel because, you know, we've always felt that there's no one that can speak to the state of Israel other than, you know, previously the United States, but not even that. Um, And and it's an extremely difficult government to deal with. Um, And they have devious ways of making sure that, you know, whatever conversations you're having... I, at the very early stage of my career as a private diplomat, tried to organize a dialogue between Hamas and the Europeans here in Indonesia. The Indonesians were all for it. The Europeans were all for it. The Israelis got hold of it, called the Americans, the Americans called the Indonesian president, said that's not going to happen. So, you know, I mean, that was 15 years ago. I'm that's s- an that American leadership we love and admire so much, isn't it?
3: Mm. <laughs> so it's,
2: it's, it, I think we, we really have to pay attention to that third part of this, which involves all of us, which is what, what values do we ascribe to our foreign policies, to our government aid policies, and can we sustain them if we, if we ourselves don't uphold the rule of law?
1: I'm so intrigued, just quickly, by the title of private diplomat. I've been trying to nut that out for a while. Who hires you?
2: Well, in a way, it's, there's more and more demand because the multilateral system is broken. and Governments, as we see, have no agency anymore. Um, and increasingly people turn to private organisations to facilitate things that governments are either not willing to do or can't do, won't do, won't do in many cases, Um, and also to try and fill in the gaps in in a system that is completely broken, um, with no-one really thinking about how to rebuild it. And so what do you do? You you hire temp, you know, uh, (laughs) temporary help. Have you put
1: your hand up yet?
2: Well, we do. That's what we do. I mean, more and more of our work is interstate because of that, because it's the interstate relations that are broken. Inter or um, interrupt? Inter.
3: But can you've s- done... <laughs> right. now, can I kind of say one thing, sorry, just maybe just in addition to what Michael said. this There is this obsession in much of the West about the so-called rules-based international order. It does not exist. It does not exist. It's now, broken. when I say that, as in... And Michael mentioned the Russian invasion of Ukraine, obviously a hideous violation of mm-hmm. all rights, but have we forgotten a multitude of other crimes? that? The American invasion of Iraq, the American invasion of Libya, which was illegitimate. I mean, there are so many examples where there is no accountability for anyone who commits torture, kills civilians. I'm talking about American officials, Israeli officials. By all means, let's arrest and take on African dictators. I'm not opposed to that. But at the same time, it's remarkable how about within about 10 minutes of Putin invading, invading Ukraine, he was charged by the ICC. By all means, charge Putin, a thug. But it's interesting how there's no desire or interest in potentially prosecuting George W. Bush or Barack Obama or any US leader since World War II, all of whom, by definition, are war criminals. By definition. None of that. And is Netanyahu a war criminal? Of course he is. And I say that because when we talk about the rules-based international order, so-called, which my government and many other governments preach, most of the world laughs they look at you and they say, sorry, how about Iraq? How about Afghanistan? How about Palestine? They laugh at you.
2: But so the UN is in a panic at the moment because all the, all the resolutions that were passed against Russia um, in the wake of the Ukraine invasion, which actually were often razor-thin majorities, because this double standard is already taken, uh, you know, taken hold in, in much of the global south. And people hate to use that term because they're afraid of the other. There is another out there. There are all these countries that now look at the behavior of the United States and Europe and say, I'm sorry, you know, you're you're just simply, it's a double standard. And now, whatever support they had at the UN, there's a very interesting story that happened last, uh, beginning of this year, the anniversary of the invasion, when the United States sponsored a resolution at a General Assembly to condemn the Russians for the invasion on the anniversary. The UAE had a resolution at the Security Council, because they're on the Security Council, um, condemning the situation in the settlements, you know, in the West Bank. The Americans pleaded with them, please remove that resolution. And they said, why? Said, because if you have that resolution at the same time we're doing this condemnation of Ukraine, it's just not going to pass. You know, and, and you know what? The UAE said, what's it worth? What's it worth?
3: Well, they're a nice client yeah, state, yeah. so they're happy so, to take... Yeah, so well, they, sure. they
2: did remove it in return for not putting sanctions on the UAE for what the Russians are doing in Dubai. So it was a good deal for the, the UAE. But that shows how razor-thin that sort of um, uh, polarity of the sort of Western world is at the UN, and this is going to make it far worse. Mm.
1: So just to finish up, um, I'd just like to hear from both of you about how, what, what your best prediction is on how this is going to play out in the short term.
3: You mean in Gaza? Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, nowhere good. I think Israel will send ground troops in shortly, today, tomorrow, next week. We don't know when. I fear many of the hostages that Hamas has, we don't know the exact figure every day I read, the numbers seem to change, but it appears to be over 200, many of whom are civilians. I fear many of them will die. My fear is that the Israeli establishment is not particularly concerned by that. They've often, some of them have actually said that. It's a, it's a price worth giving up. I think there's also, it's worth saying, profound anger within Israel towards Netanyahu. A lot of, lot of polls say that he should resign tomorrow. He won't. But there is massive profound anger towards him because he is blamed correctly for the unbelievable disaster on October 7. Israel will go into Gaza on ground troops. I fear it's going to be an ugly guerrilla war. I think it's conceivable that Hamas can be, inverted commas, overthrown militarily, its architecture destroyed... Of course, huge amounts of civilians killed. I think Israel will inevitably begin a global assassination campaign against Hamas leadership because most Hamas leadership don't live in Gaza. They live around the Arab and Muslim world. So all those leaders of Hamas looking over their shoulder right now because they have a. I think they will not have a long life. Israel has done this in the past with Palestinian leaders. So it's going to get ugly. The fear, is finally, is, of course, that you start bringing Hezbollah in the north. I hope to hell that does not happen because if it does, the US will be involved in a major way, and that is... And Iran, and, and Iran. Then it's potentially World War Three.
2: So I think, just to add, I mean, maybe a slightly different, what may happen when Israel goes into Hamas, uh, into, into Gaza, is Hamas may have calculated if they can kill 1,500 IDF troops, that's victory for them. It's an eye for an eye. Yeah. And, you know, they, they may be decimated, but they will kill as many IDF as possible. And that's going to have political ramifications in Israel as mm. well. Mm. And that's where their victory lies. Because Netanyahu is finished. Um, He should be in jail, should have been in jail a long time ago. Um, He will be put in jail, hopefully next to Palestinians. And, um, uh, you know, because, you know, he he really is to blame for this. But that will not, and it's a question to you. I mean, will that address the far right? Will a more sensible Israeli government come along and re-establish a sense of balance? Or you I think wish I
3: believed that because one of the things that I think is worth saying, so many people here will have seen these huge amounts of Israeli-Jewish protesters this year protesting before the current situation. And the Western media's has framed that as they're looking, they're saving Israeli democracy. It's bollocks. That's not what they're saving. They're claiming that they want to maintain Jewish democracy. And there's a reason why no Palestinians are protesting. They're not interested in Jewish democracy. It doesn't benefit them. It benefits Jews who are living a Jewish supremacist lifestyle, A, and B, we are sold this idea from this protest movement that the Israeli Supreme Court is the last check on democracy. The Supreme Court in Israel has spent 50 years being a rubber stamp for the occupation, and Palestinians know that.
2: Or we, unfortunately, may go back to the status quo ante where the Palestinians are ignored. There is a sort of general stability again and everyone just ignores the problem
1: well on that note um, I trust you'll all keep your eyes on the news and I thank you both so much Um, Anthony No, in particular for you it's been a huge
3: few weeks thank you thank
1: you and Thank you to Michael too and I urge you to please read their books. They're both brilliant books and peace be with you all.
2: Thanks, Dorothy. Thank you, Crystal. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you.